0: This week on the show, we tell you how to catch a Bitcoin miner, call for more collaboration in the BSD driver development world, set standard updates, which are bringing performance improvements, hating hackathons and why that is, how to monitor multiple log files at once, which is useful, keypass XE and things you might consider, SSHD random linking and boot for OpenBSD's SSHD and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 497, Random Relinking SSHD, recorded on the 15th of February, 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. And we thank you in advance for that. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling and I'm Alan Jude. Welcome. Hope you had a good week this far. And we try to make this week a little bit better with some nuggets from the BSD world. The first thing is, well, you can call it a nugget. Maybe it's a it's fool's gold, maybe, but it's something about Bitcoin. Uh, it's about Sysadmin series in, from Clara Systems that they kind of started, I guess, with this. Uh, and I'm not I'm very deeply involved because I wrote this part or was involved uh, in this uh, story, How to Catch a Bitcoin Miner.
1: Yeah, uh, so as Benny kind of was trying to say there, uh, he wrote this article, so I'll I'll (laughs) give you the briefing on it to say uh, it always feels weird for all three of us hosting this podcast, uh, reading our own articles to you, so we always take turns. <laughs> uh so yeah, as part of our ongoing Sysadmin series focused on revealing the work that actually goes into administering IT infrastructure from all points of view, uh we're looking at this some stories Benedict has about people abusing uh shared resources. Uh, so when it comes to building a secure environment or troubleshooting issues, it's all part of the daily life of a sysadmin. Uh so before we even start looking for the bitcoin miner, we we'll give a little bit of background. Um So, there's a a series of systems that are set up uh, with some NoSQL databases that students have SSH and VPN access to so that they can work on their assignments from home and be able to do the, you know, learn how to use these databases and do big data processing. Of course, uh, when we first start looking at this problem, we see some oddities in the amount of CPU being used. A monitor graph showing a, you know, a big spike in CPU usage that isn't explained by the time of year or students uh, doing things they're supposed to be. So figuring out what happened and how that was uh, coming about is a big part of it. And then collecting evidence to make a case uh, makes it almost like a whodunit uh, Agatha Christie story. Yeah. So, yeah. Starting out several years ago, we were building uh, an educational environment, with the database lab uh, of then, you know, doing da- big data processing. They were not given any, uh, the students are not given administrative access to the system. Uh, because that would tell them to go very well, uh, but they could start and stop their databases and they could load their data from their home directory. These tasks were essential to compare the different NoSQL databases and get an idea of how to structure their data and, and get good performance. At the beginning of the semester, there's always a bit of a fluctuation in the number of students taking a course. Some drop out early, some join late, etc. Other students may or may not have uh, you know, taken these freshly open seats, anyway, in this particular class, the fluctuation left an odd number of students. So one of the latecomers was assigned to a whole system to themselves. Uh, So then we get into the need for system monitoring and auditing. As the admin who set up these systems before the semester starts, uh, Benedict typically would visit the first two sessions of each group uh, and make sure that everything was working for them. During these first labs, we assign students to the different systems and make sure they can log in and they have all the permissions they need and know how to use it. Uh, after that initial user setup, there's rarely a need to revisit the labs because uh, most of the problems are resolved by either just emailing with the individual or something central that applies to everyone. Uh, So as a sysadmin, responsibilities include just uh, making sure the systems are up and reachable, looking at metrics like CPU load and disk IO, making sure uh, things are the way they're supposed to be, and processing and and storing logs. Uh, But then, you know, doing the routine course of being a sysadmin, Several weeks into the semester, Benedict notes, uh, notices that uh, there were you know, no major incidents, but one of these machines suddenly was using 100% of its CPU time all the time. So as looking through the graphs, notice something odd. One of these systems is completely pegged at 800% CPU usage. So all eight cores are fully taken up. Curious about the strange behavior, Benedict looks at the weekly graph and notes that this started all of a sudden at one particular time, and in particular that all of this CPU time is in the nice category, Uh, meaning that it's user space application. It's not from the operating system and that it's all been set to low priority. So digging into it a bit more uh, and one of the first things you run in that case is top just to get an overview of what's going on. And at that point, Benedict sees uh, exactly what he uh, wasn't expecting. Which is a process called CPU miner using seven hundred and ninety-nine
0: point two percent of all CPU
1: time. Ah, <laughs> uh, so then brief background on, on what a uh why a Bitcoin miner is there and what it does and how it works and talking about other things like steady at home and protein folding that are more useful to do if you have if you want to use up your active CPU time but in particular talking about why it is nice like that so that any idle CPU time gets used and any not idle time can be uh, you know processes that still want to do something can still do that. So after this initial shock the next step was to find out who is actually doing this. Uh, was it someone who hacked into the system from the outside uh, or was it somebody uh one of the students we knew not long uh after the mining had started you know started in calendar week 19 from the monitoring graphs but we had no idea who had been running it fortunately we did not have to search for very long uh partly because top shows us which user uh was starting the application Uh, all users in the university have uh uniquely identified by a login id uh, and that was you know part of their setup by digging through this they knew who was suddenly doing it so in particular, Benedict uh, resisted the urge to just kill the process right away. <laughs> uh, as much as I like adding to. a couple more seconds of CPU time, uh, wouldn't, uh, add up to anything. So he looked at what to do next, uh, digging into the process. You can actually see where the bitcoins were being sent to after they were being mined, uh, and digging up more of that as well. He said the most detailed logs, uh, were to be found on the system itself. And they were, uh, Intact since there's no evidence of the root machine, the root on the machine being compromised. Uh, but a particularly clever attacker might have been able to hide some tracks there. Uh, looking at all the different factors and the evidence on the system, that was enough to convince us that the student was the true culprit, uh, not just uh, a patsy for an unknown attacker. Uh, and so, as part of the paperwork that every student does to, to become, or to get access to the system, uh, they promise not to abuse IT systems in this way. Uh, And clearly this is not part of a class assignment. And so this was a big no-no. Yeah, for reasons. Yeah, and so what about blocking the Bitcoin miner, uh, the URL where the Bitcoin miner was trying to send stuff to make sure that anybody else who does in this future wouldn't, at at a minimum, wouldn't get their Bitcoins. uh, Then killing the process that was running uh, and dealing with uh, giving the user a, a good talking to.
0: Yeah. And you might think, ha, uh-huh, brouhaha, this will never happen on my system or in my network.
1: Well, I thought the same
0: thing. So be careful. Watch your systems. Look for unusual things, even if you don't expect them.
1: Yeah, uh, I have actually seen uh, a machine get compromised via the uh, lights out management system and have its GPU repurposed for Bitcoin mining. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, and so... You know, this does actually. There, there are actually attackers doing this out in the wild as well. Um, in this case, they had actually managed to compromise root via the console uh, because they had the out-of-band management access.
0: Yeah, and that could go unnoticed for weeks and months, even.
1: Yeah, although in this case, uh, they broke the GPU driver in a way that set off the customer's alerting uh, and results that <laughs> I was looking at right away and being like, nope, okay, this this machine needs to be nuked from orbit and reset because somebody's been poking at it in a way they definitely shouldn't have been.
0: Yeah, so cautionary tale. Hopefully you uh, got something out of that. Uh, thanks, Clara, for letting me have this kind of a you know group therapy session <laughs> this way. Um, Let's look at uh, FOSDEM, which has been like two weeks ago. Uh, Unfortunately, we couldn't get there, but I think there was a small group uh, of BSD people there, and they even had a table of the FreeBSD Foundation. Uh, There was also a half-day BSD dev room, and one of the talks from there is a call for more collaboration and harmony among BSD hardware drivers. From Pierre Pranchery, hopefully that's correct. Um, And the slides are up already, and maybe the videos, by the time uh, you watch this or listen to it, uh, check out uh, uh, the show notes. We have them, or directly at the FOSDEM page.
1: Yes, the FOSDEM page has links to the slides and the uh, video.
0: Oh, Excellent. So you can watch the event if you couldn't make it. Oh, yeah, there's plenty of... Uh, oh, that's that's a nice presentation. So not too text-heavy, but also uh, giving a bit of background story.
1: Yeah, but in particular, they look at comparing a driver uh, for like uh, a FreeBSD driver versus the same driver from OpenBSD. Uh, looking that, you know, they're originally somebody wrote this uh, first for OpenBSD, and then it went to NetBSD, and then it got to FreeBSD. But you can see when we compare them, there's just a couple of lines that are different. Now, uh, this include file is called module.h instead of device.h, or you know, I have kernel.h or system.h when we include, and then what the paths are when we uh, include things like the the interface for the USB device, and it's just the path is slightly different. Uh, all these little niggling things that mean it takes a bunch of work to move this driver between the different BSDs, whereas if we could commonize this, more of the drivers would work without having to be moved left or right. In some cases, it's even just we have the same you know, probe uh, function, but it has a different prototype between the different BSDs, and it makes it that much harder to use, reuse the same USB driver on a different one of the BSDs.
0: Yeah, would be good to lessen the effort for everyone. Yeah, definitely good uh, food for thought here. And don't forget to check out the other talks that were given at the BSD dev room.
1: Yeah, and so in particular, it talks about the dream being, you know, having one common API for drivers across all the BSDs. Uh, You know, the reality is, mm, you know, the network stacks are quite different between them. So plumbing, that might be a little more difficult, but maybe there are at least certain subsets of drivers that could, more easily get to this uh and you know ideally i think uh there's a, a couple of categories that really could and then maybe we could get closer with the others because in particular uh, if you're thinking of something like a vendor uh making a driver if they could get all the bsds for the price of one uh that might you know increase the chance that that happens as opposed to them being like we did one already that's it. <laughs> uh, or deciding not to do any at all. Uh, you know, things that could be done differently is looking at, you know, BSD-specific versus driver-specific chunks of code. Uh, one of the ways to look at this maybe was actually uh, kind of what OpenZFS did is, you know, here's this directory has all the common code in it, and then there's an OS subdirectory uh, with each OS's kind of glue code to be able to, to link that common code into their operating system uh and just do as much as we can in particular looking at if we can commonize database things like pci and usb device ids and register names and values and driver names uh so that you know the same usb device is called by the same name on the different bsds would even be a start uh so sharing some of these you know things that are just at h files and and aren't uh that hard to commonize would at least be a start yeah, yeah. But yeah, we have all these uh common bits about POSIX to, to make sure the whole user lands are all compatible, but then we don't do anything for the kernel drivers and maybe we should.
0: Yeah, let's hope the BSDs don't diverge too much on this front because they still do a lot of code sharing. And so yeah, definitely uh that should be something discussed at a major BSD conference again, maybe at BSD CAN or EuroBSDCon, CON, because it kind of affects every BSD.
1: Yeah, and I think even just getting the PCI, or PCI and USB device ID files commonized is not that big of an ask and uh, would be a start.
0: Yeah, especially if people have these IDs, why not share them to just identify which hardware you have?
1: Well, and I think also in particular, each of the BSDs already has this concept of kind of vendored code, stuff they brought in from other upstreams. And so maybe this ends up being just that The big list of device IDs lives in its own repo somewhere. Yeah, the uh, common source. All the BSDs kind of maintain together and then pull into their own branches. And then it makes it easier to maintain for all of us. Yep, give and take. So next up, we have an article from our friend Vermiden who's got printing on FreeBSD. He says, nothing compares more to the sense of power Unix sysadmins experience when they're able to print from the command line. (laughs) He says, I kind of omitted this topic, printing, uh, for quite a long time. I've been using FreeBSD in the corporate environment uh, and still end up printing from a Windows VM uh, on the network printers. They then forced me to use Windows anyway. Uh, At home, my wife always had a printer configured on her machine, so we just did it that way, and so on. Uh, I was also disappointed when I tried several years ago to capture a USB printer on FreeBSD, and it didn't work. Recently, I thought about uh, messing around with this and seeing if we can't get the printer working. So this guy will focus on the two printers uh, that he happens to have, an HP Color LaserJet 200 and a Samsung black and white ML1915. Uh, The first being attached over the network with TCP IP uh, and the Samsung being USB attached. Uh, I know when I bought my Samsung printer, I specifically opted for the network-based one because I knew that had the greatest chances of being able to print properly from FreeBSD. Mm. Uh, because yep. I can you know if you send the stuff to it over the network then it's less complicated than dealing with USB or anything else and also just being in my house there's a lot of computers and I want to be able to print them all and having it USB connected to one of them complicates that versus just it's on the LAN and anybody can print to it whenever they need it. so he starts out uh, by setting up cups and getting it configured and then getting the HP working and then getting the Samsung working so he installs CUPS and CUPS filters, uh, and setting up DevFS rules so that the CUPS group will have access to all these devices. Uh, and then he sets his uh, rc.conf to apply those DevFS rules, and now we see uh, the all the LTP and ULTP and UNLTP ports have the group CUPS applied to them so that anybody in the CUPS group can access those printers. Uh, So he looks in the user local ETC CUPS and starts configuring uh, the CUPS daemon, uh, enable it in rc.conf, and start the service, and you can see it listening on localhost. So then, uh, since the Vermidane group is already in the uh, right group, then we're able to print. So first we're going to try the network printer, the HP uh, ColorJet. Uh, Before doing any steps or configuration on FreeBSD, we first need to connect the printer to the network. Uh, So they get that set up with an IP address, uh, and then they can hit CUPS on their computer uh, and add the printer. And it automatically discovered the HP LaserJet 200 color on our network, uh, and they got it added up uh, with its socket and all the settings. So once that was done, they picked the right driver to be able to talk to the printer. Uh, And it says the printer driver and raw queues are deprecated and uh, ready to go. But now that they have that, they look in their user local etc cups ppd directory, and they see the new printer. They go to the status page in cups, and we can see that the printer is ready to go. So now to print some documents. Uh, So it opens up... uh, PDF he has here called uh, ZFS Madness 2014 uh, in his PDF viewer and goes file print, uh, selects that HP printer and then huzzah! Next thing we see is a picture of his laptop with a piece of paper on top of it showing the document and it printed and it looks right. Woo! So next up, let's try the USB printer. So we got this Samsung ML 1915 printer. Uh, and we need the ppd driver for it which comes from this splix package which they installed so now we see uh in user local share cups model samsung ml uh, 1915 so we have the driver for it Uh, so then they get that set up uh figure out which usb device uh maps to that this printer connected to yeah yep. and so we see the ulpt zero is the device and it's got the cups group on it so we go back into the cups web interface and add a printer and then we see the samsung ml191x series printers We get that added and we know that the connection for that is going to be usb colon slash slash samsung yada yada select the right driver for it. this the ml1915 Uh, and configure the rest of the settings. And now that printer is also available in the CUPS PPD directory. And so when we go to printers tab in CUPS, we see the two printers. We choose which one is the default uh, and get that set. And then it shows some of the actual uh, manual CUPS config files. So if you use the web interface, this is all done for you. But uh, being command line people, we show what it looks like here. And they also look at LP stats uh, and LP options to control a bunch of stuff and print from the command line. So then they use the LP command and point it at that same PDF file. uh, And now we're printing the PDF from the command line instead of from the GUI uh, PDF program. Uh, And so then they get it set up uh, with the uh, HP JetDirect program and get it set up so that they can uh, print over the network uh, as well.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's always very detailed, uh, the blog post Vermitton puts out, so always good to just watch and follow uh, what he writes and get a lot done this way. Oh, the next one also has Alan's name on it in the news roundup. We have set standard updates for you which I thought would be interesting to cover because Z standard in ZFS is already amazing and also standalone as a compressor, decompressor utility.
1: Well, and it turns out that it was actually uh, me who did the update of FreeBSD's copy of Z standard to that version that just came out the other that day comes after on top of uh, it. poking from Ed. <laughs> uh, so yeah, talk about that.
0: Yeah, this is about ZStandard 1.5.4.
1: Yeah, uh, so the release notes for that. uh, To begin with, there's various speed improvements. Looking at something like uh, the Apple M1 Pro machine, uh, we see that decompression went from 1370 megabytes a second to 1480, giving us a nice 8% improvement there. Uh, Or like a Galaxy S22 also saw decompression speed up by 4%. Looking at uh, compression, uh, an uh, i7-9700K uh, saw a ten percent speed up of, on compression uh at this level six and at level nine another nine point five percent et cetera and level twelve uh up by uh about less than one percent on the i seven but over ten percent on the m one so lots of uh performance improvements there and the dictionary compression uh went way up like twenty to thirty uh, percent lots of other improvements there playing with uh the Synchronous or async IO. Uh, and there was the the bug fix uh for a, a memory corruption problem, which is why we imported this new version uh, a little sooner than normally would have. Oh, yeah, I see. And oh, so wow. it's all there. <laughs> they
0: have one in the MacBook Pro M1 from 465 megabytes per second to 875 megabytes, which is a 150% improvement.
1: That was in a very specific case. This is using async yeah. I/O, And I think that had more to do probably with the, um, the NVMe or something in the disk than anything.
0: Yeah, it's... Uh, wow. A speed improvement without any hardware upgrade. Yeah, amazing. The changelog also has uh, other changes um, related to performance. But also, you know, fixes and a bit of um, improvements here and there. And it's huge. You would think, hey, it's just a compression algorithm. No, there's plenty of people involved and a lot of uh, PRs mm-hmm. listed that are...
1: Uh, yeah, well, it's, it's getting or, used or, in a lot of different things, uh, built into yeah. other software and file systems and operating systems, you know. Uh, in addition to being used in ZFS, ZStandard is also used in FreeBSD for kernel crash dump compression um, and a bunch of other things like that.
0: Yeah, to just make it smaller and a deep recompression less less longer. Wow. That's why I thought it would be good to mention here on the show, just to appreciate what you have in this uh, library.
1: Yeah, and the, you know the work on... Doing this for ZFS is also ongoing. I know uh, Rich and I have been looking at, uh, in particular, some of the improvements they made here uh, around Z standard levels 9 and 12. uh, We're seeing less of an improvement. Sometimes it's actually being slower than the old version on those particular levels. Although the trade-off being you're getting more compression out of it, uh, but making sure that things are always going to go in the right direction there.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's not always like, oh, make it faster, but also keep it reliable and, you know, as a file system uh, enhancement doesn't need to jeopardize or compromise on other fronts.
1: Yeah, and we did a bunch of pre-work uh when we originally imported Zstandard to deal with what happens when we need a newer version of Zstandard. Uh but you know, we're still not completely satisfied about what our options are is to avoid having to keep every old version of Z standard included in Zfs hmm. and so we've not updated with every single point release at this point, yeah, okay, that needs a bit more careful testing and yeah, and so I did a a backport of the the fix for the memory corruption thing to the older version that's built into Zfs
0: Oh yeah, the individual bits that are not uh, uh significant for performance but our bug fixes in
1: general well not all of them but the one that was uh, a all of them uh, the security problem there was one that had a security problem and so we definitely got that fixed yeah that that should be in there (laughs) okay
0: all good um and we also have a article that i found would be interesting to cover uh titled i hate hackathons which people would probably find huh why they are super cool and uh, well, productive it depends and all
1: that. on the type of hackathon which is the actually
0: yeah so uh, the preface reads uh, I'm not arguing that these atrocities happen everywhere uh, rather there are at least a few players in the market who are guilty of this sin by having hackathons be not what people envision and so the author here has classified the hackathons in three types. The first is an internal corporate hackathon. Uh, these are the only open to internal employees of a particular company or a section inside the company. The second is an external corporate hackathon, uh, which are open to the public, but participants must build around software provided by the corporate host. University hackathons also fall here.
1: Yeah, well, and the like, third is in that one, you know, the point of this hackathon is to somebody builds something on whatever the company's or the university's product or framework or whatever is.
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Good to distinguish that. And the third is no objective hackathons. Sometimes you might find hackathons without prizes, sponsors, or objectives. These are the best places to hack.
1: Right. Well, I would say like what OpenBSD calls a hackathon is, you know, it it has objectives, although everybody's free to work on whatever they want kind of thing. Yeah. Bring uh, something
0: they, or talk to people and then come up with a pro- little project or yeah. Uh, whatever comes up.
1: Yeah. And you know, some of it just, there's a bunch of different things that are all called hackathons and, and they are not necessarily the same thing.
0: Yeah. They are kind of, uh, something else. And so they talk about, you know, uh, what they are. Hackathons are a cheap way to prototype ideas. Uh, Depends on who's there, like uh, product managers, managers, software developers. So this has a lot of uh, corporate touch on it, and that kind of sour's the milk a little bit for the, this particular person. And I can see the dangers that come with that. Uh, even though there would all there are also companies that run these well with everyone, um, you know, getting something out of it without the company benefiting too much, or at least having not a finished product at the end, uh, but still providing something for the community. And there's a couple of memes in there and pictures that uh, illustrate some of these uh, issues they are talking about. So definitely give it a look. And next time you attend the hackathon, maybe you're aware of what's going on a bit earlier. Then one of the pages that I uh, read every uh, now and then because it frequently gives updates is sleeplessbeastie.eu, which is not a BSD-related website, but it has a couple of good Unix how-tos, and this particular one is not too Linux-specific, so I thought we'd mention it here. How to monitor multiple log files at once.
1: Yep, this is a, a tool called Multitail. It really can be useful in multiple ways. I'll show you a couple of the different ones. So first, start by installing Multitail. And if you run Multitail-h, it'll spit out the help. Uh, and so they do, you know, Multitail, follow all, and then have two different input files uh and it's somewhat equivalent to just doing tail capital f on the two files uh the difference being that multi-tail is uh, colorizing things a bit and uh being a bit smarter about how it does the two separate things in this case it's actually doing almost a split screen of the two files instead of uh, mixing them together
0: yeah without having to run it in tmux or any other
1: Uh, although you can also use the merge all option if you want uh, the files to all be in one window instead And you can also set colors uh, for different files. So you can say, you know, merge all the lines from file one, two, and three, but I want file one to be red and file two to be blue and so on. And you can actually easily see. And you can also uh, use a command instead. So you can, you know, ssh to a host until it's syslog file and then a second host. And again, you know, split screen those or merge them with colors and all those things we just talked about you can also have it apply filtering. So rather than trying to grip the output here, you can have the filtering be built in so that you know it still works when you're doing the split screen and so on.
0: Yeah, so quite useful if you're watching a lot of logs or need to find something in there that occasionally scrolls through. So yeah, little nuggets like this are posted on sleepless beasties notes. Uh, then... Ah, something from uh, Jan-Piet Mens' blog, uh, Notes to Self, Key Pass XC." So he writes, more and more frequently when I ask friends and family, people with mainly non-computing background, how they manage their passwords, their eyes clawed over, and I then feel the need to tell them that they ought to apply good password hygiene. Uh, yeah, I tend to men's plate a lot. <laughs> is, just, uh, I found
1: that, that little... Uh... Pun on Mansplain and his last yeah. name to be amusing. <laughs> uh,
0: so as he, as much as he's been looking more deeply into KeePassXC as a multi-platform open-source and very decent uh, password manager. Uh, so he ran away from One Password many years ago when, if he recalls correctly, forced cloud upon their users and also converted to a subscription model and settled for EPass E-pa- at the time. Uh, aside from a number of UI quirks in ENPASS, he's been happy enough with it and got all at the time when they had purchase model. Uh, believed that that meanwhile also changed to a subscription model. Uh, want to be able to recommend a program which has a fixed price, in open source is fine, and the UI which will hopefully remain somewhat consistent. And he thinks key pass actually matches that requirement. And so he talks about creating the key file and um, you know running it through OpenSSL. And creating a nice uh, QR encoded picture as a QR code so that you can scan this and have it available next time you need it. And then you can say, oh, how do I keep my KeyPass XE database synchronized? In this case, he says I have to use either SyncThing, Dropbox, or a file share. Uh, and there is KeyPassium for iOS and possibly also for other apps such as KeyPass DX and KeyPass to Android so that they are also available on mobile devices.
1: I know some people also using uh, the Google Drive functionality to keep uh, the database synchronized between a number of computers.
0: Oh, yeah. Good to have a separate copy on a different machine, just in case.
1: Well, in this case, it's using the Google Drive to keep it in sync across all their machines. So when they add a password Mm -hmm. on machine one, they can then later use it on machine two.
0: Yeah, that's good. And that's what these things are for, right? Keeping passwords secure and available on
1: other. Yeah, and... Sync thing is, is basically a self hosted version of that.
0: Yeah. And so it shows a little bit of the UI, talks about the SSH agent, which also implements uh, KeepassXE implements. And there's a section about TOTP for time based one time passwords, which are also good to have available. And yeah, good introduction. Thank you, Jan Pete. Yep, Hopefully, you're uh, well recovering. And hopefully I'll see you next time at one of the BSD conferences or any other conference around the world.
1: Yeah, I uh, played with Bitwarden a bit uh, and looked pretty good as far as being able to host it yourself and so on. Uh, although, you know, they were also impacted by some of the, the recent stuff, making sure that the the defaults are caught up to 2023 standards, but uh does still look like you know, having the functionality uh, that Bitwarden has, but being able to host it yourself so that you have more control over locking it down does seem like uh, a good option as well.
0: Yeah, the more passwords we have, the more we want to have such a system.
1: So next up in our little roundup, we have uh, SSHD random relinking at boot. Uh, If you remember, OpenBSDs have for a while, uh, the concept there, it can reorder uh, the kernel modules and uh, the .so files. Uh, at boot, when I randomly relink them so that uh, ROP gadgets and so on won't work between reboots, so that rather than everybody who has OpenBSD having the same offsets, everybody's is done in a different order every time they reboot, uh, making it harder to exploit things on the machine. And so now they're looking at doing that specifically for the SSHD. Uh, so it says create and install the SSHD random relink kit. Uh, so these makefile changes are concatenated for reuse, which hopefully won't be too fragile, and we'll see if we need a different approach. But anyway, the resulting SSHD binary is tested with the SSHD capital V option before installation to make sure it actually works, just in case. Uh, as the binary layer is now semi-unknown, meaning relative, fixed, and gadget offsets are not precisely known, uh, changing the file system emissions to 511 to prevent what I call uh, logged in BROP. Uh, so someone who has access to the system won't be able to read the binary uh, and figure out where the offsets are. Uh, I have an idea for improving this further, but this is just the first step. Uh, and then they have uh, processed the SSHD random relink kit. Uh, if it is found, SSHD's text segment is now garbled, and in the future, the uh, execute-only uh, universe, you'll have uh, very poor success in downloading it or, or LibC and knowing where the gadgets are.
0: Good, always having a better way of uh, keeping SSHD more secure than it already is. BSD Now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups, and Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud, so that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what data is duplicated so that bandwidth can be saved. It then assembles your data into compressed blocks, encrypts them with your local private key that never leaves your system, and then uploads those encrypted blocks to the cloud. So even if someone is able to obtain your backed up data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use TAR, then you can use Tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code to make sure it does what we say it does. Tarsnap also does bug bounties if you can find errors in the code. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse to not have good backups. Go to Tarsnap.com to learn more. Okay, that brings us into our feedback and questions section for this week. If you want to have uh, contact with the show or into the show or post your question, send it to feedback at bsdnow.tv or if you found a good article or how-to that we should cover, this is the address to send it to. The first this week is Nelson with an AIX related thing. Um, The TUHS, which is the Unix Heritage Society, I have to <laughs> remind myself every time after a nice uh, interview a while back with Warren Toomey. Uh, the Tuesday list today has a long stream of letters about the moving of AIX to maintenance mode. A good bit of the discussions touches the FreeBSD and other members of the BSD family, and thus might be worth a note in the BSD Now podcast, which you just got. Uh, the archives are linked at tuhs.org and thanks for keeping these excellent podcasts going. Thank you. Yeah, check out mini.tuahs.org and the particular section about AIX, AIX, which is mentioned here.
1: Yeah, it's uh, often something that comes up when one of the older commercial Unixes goes into maintenance mode. It's like, well, with open source, we, we have something that's probably the closest you're going to get. And it's still going and it's supported and modern software actually works on it. and it's probably what you want to go to if you need to get off AIX.
0: Oh, yeah. One way or the other, you have to do this sooner rather than later. And there's plenty of alternatives away in the, on, on the system so or on other uh, operating systems. We'll see. Uh, next up is Adrian with a question about VBSDCon. Oh, here we go. Hi, Benedict Allen. I believe I got to meet both of you at VBSDCon the last time. It was held way back in 2019. Oh dear. It's uh, it's held on odd years uh, and 2021 didn't happen for reasons we don't need to get into. Yep. Do either of you know if
1: VBSDCon will be back for 2023? I do not know. Uh, Neither do I. Usually, I hope it will. Usually I would get harangued by the people at VBSDCon, or at VeriSign at BSDCon uh, earlier that year uh, to be like, you know, can, do you want to be on the program committee or whatever? Uh, <laughs> so based on that, I, I hope we will know relatively soon. Uh, we will maybe make some inquiries as well. Uh, I very much hope so. Uh, having a conference in the, the DC area is always gets uh, a whole group of people we wouldn't get otherwise. Because, uh, you know, while... SD can isn't that far away. it's you know not somewhere most people will easily drive versus uh d c does cover you know driving distance for a lot of people um and so I very much hope so, but I don't have any more information than you do at this point.
0: yeah, it's usually held in October or November even, so it's a bit <laughs> far out, but maybe they are working on planning at least we we wouldn't know. Uh, we will let you know if there is something about this, like a call for papers or a web page. So, uh, can't tell much more. Uh, it still continues the message. It's a great conference, always a lot of fun. Since It's always in Virginia. It's driving distance, expensive, and dearly missed. Yep. Keep the great shows coming. Thank you. As an old timer that gets paid for what I learned using BSD, but not to work on BSD, they are my connection what's happening in the greater BSD community. Plus this podcast, of course. Uh, thanks, Adrian. Yeah, good. Would be nice to meet you again. Indeed. And others. And yeah, people are really back into the conference uh, circle. They they want to meet again. and uh, It's really been a long time. I'm certainly looking forward to a lot more happenings and gatherings. Uh, yeah, that pretty much covers everything we had for you today in this episode. Remember, next week there will be another one. And uh, until then, take care, be well, and let us know if something comes up in the BSD space that we may have missed to feedback at bsdnow.tv.